Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is largely accidental. This is riddled with unforced errors. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I am your host. Do you like me? Do you find me acceptable? I'm sitting here as usual in Los Angeles, California, and I'm very excited about today's guest. Jennifer Dubois is here. She's not here with me in the room right now, uh, but she is here on this digital audio file. She is uh, inside of this file with me currently. We had a conversation, and I recorded it, and I am now sharing it with you free of charge uh, because I find this enjoyable. I find it enjoyable to share audio files on the Internet. So thank you for downloading the file. I appreciate it. And it's Halloween uh, tomorrow. Do you need a costume? Are you struggling to come up with a creative idea? I have one for you if you need it, if you're in a pinch. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Here we go. Uh, here's my idea for you. You can be windblown person. Windblown person. Uh, I can vouch for this. I have used this costume on multiple occasions in the past. Uh, it's always effective. If you are uh, a guy, for example, if you are a man, you just put on a shirt and some pants and some shoes and you wear a necktie. Very low maintenance. Uh, in all likelihood, there will be no purchase necessary. But then after you put on the necktie, uh, you got to do something. You have to go into your closet and get a wire coat hanger and then you need to feed uh, the wire coat hanger or part of the wire coat hanger into the necktie and then you bend the necktie up over your shoulder uh, and then you tape or staple or glue some leaves and perhaps some other kinds of uh, paper detritus to your person to your body and then from there, you use uh, some uh, some styling gel or some other kind of hair product, and you make your hair stand up 
in a haphazard manner and you look as if you are caught in a windstorm. That is the effect you're going for. And if anyone asks you uh, what you are, you simply tell them that you are a windblown man. Or woman. If you, you know, you have to vary it a little bit if you're a woman, but you get the idea. And that's it. That's the costume. So I hope you enjoy that. I hope it's a, a helpful idea. If you are in need of one, it's always a hit at parties and you will get points for creativity. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Jennifer Dubois. I like saying that name, Dubois. Her new novel, Cartwheel, is now available from Random House, and it is generating all sorts of uh, terrific buzz, and uh, it is also winning plaudits. I'm very happy to have her here on the program, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Jennifer Dubois, and her new novel, once again, is called Cartwheel. I mean, for me, like, writing a book, always it always feels just sort of like a miracle um, and sort of an impossibility that anybody else will ever read it. So I truly just sort of look for what interests me the most. And the first time around, that was, you know, a chess champion turned political dissident. And the second time, it was this this story which interested me because people seem to see this person so differently. Like um, people would look at the Amanda Knox case and come away not only with really different conclusions, but with really like stridently firm different conclusions. Like people were like totally sure that she was, um, you know, innocent and had been railroaded or like totally sure that she was this, you know, like lurking sociopath. And, and I thought that that was really interesting. And, and I think, with the novel, it's like you have to spend so much time. You read it so many more times than anybody else ever will that I think you kind of have to just pick something that you feel some like weird, insatiable um, curiosity about. And so, I'm sorry, sure. I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to ask about um, a partial history of lost causes because. Um, mm-hmm. you know, cartwheel is the new book. That's the one that, you know, at least in some way draws from the Amanda Knox, um, trial, but with a partial history, uh, and forgive me, I might be totally screwing this up, but wasn't there a Russian chess champion named Gary Kasparov who mm-hmm. ran for office and did try to, to, yeah. okay. So with both books, you seem to have found a seed for your fiction in the news. Fair. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, writers are always looking kind of, well, hopefully they're looking beyond their own lives to sort of find inspiration. And, you know, whether that's somebody that you know, or some story you hear, or some situation that you find yourself or someone else in, or, you know, you look sort of beyond into the news or history. I mean, I think that that's 
fairly, you know, common approach to getting kind of the interesting, like, question that then you sort of follow in your writing. Um, but, yeah, what's kind of funny is actually the first book is actually, in a way, kind of more closely, uh, I mean, not very closely, but I would say um, probably more closely linked to reality because it's actually set in Russia where, of course, you know, Gary Kasparov, who was sort of the broad, you know, inspiration for that character, it's from, whereas Cartwheel is not even set, you know, it, Cartwheel I think I think of as actually having a much more tenuous link to reality. It's just that, as it turns out, you know, not that many people really know about Gary Kasparov. So that link, although by the way, noticed by some people. By the way, yeah. I feel extremely smart for having gotten that right. I, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, it's not, you know, that common. I mean, not a lot of people, um, not like heavily on a lot of people's minds, I think, in quite the same way that. And then in Oxford, so, Gary Kasparov, so Gary Kasparov know, is not quite as like a, a photogenic. Let's just be honest. And chess, you know, I think he's a perfectly photogenic man. But yeah, he's not like so hot right now, I guess, comparatively. But I mean, like that's the thing about the way the media blows these things up is that, um, and, and especially with like you know, I think of abduction stories. You know, it's always like a an attractive blonde. It seems like. Um, well, sure. You know, and then it's like this murder mystery. I, you know, I think a lot of it is just because she's like model pretty. Like, you know, that doesn't hurt, and it makes it a lot more consumable or something for people. And I don't know. You know, I like I, I have such a weird kind of surface um, uh, awareness of these stories because they come across my computer screen, but I rarely like dive in. You know, so it's like I know right. about I, I know about them, but I don't know what's going on really, and. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I know she had a book come out, and that's basically it. Yeah, and I think that that's, of course, that's common, but I think what's kind of interesting is that, I mean, you sound like you're pretty kind of agnostic, which is sort of rare. I mean, I think a lot of people are sort of in your position of not having followed it that closely, not really knowing like a lot of specifics, but still having like a really firm opinion about it, you know, being like totally convinced of either her innocence or her guilt. And I do think that, you know, the fact that she's really conventionally attractive kind of plays into that because I think that that makes some people kind of want to see her as like this, you know, like angel face, you know, devious, you know, creature or other people sort of see in that attractiveness, you know, innocence. But either way, it's like, it doesn't really have anything to do with whether a person actually commits a crime, you know? Right. Well, okay. So let's, since you uh, have ruminated on this uh, more than most, uh, I would like you to go on the record on my show as to whether or not Amanda Knox is guilty or innocent. Do you have a strong feeling? I mean, you must have really dove. I mean, did you dive in uh, to a degree that might exceed my own or most people's in terms of the details of that case as you were setting about to write this novel? Or did you intentionally stay away from the details of it lest they infect your own narrative or something? Um, well, after, I mean, after I found myself, you know, kind of curious about it and then sort of realizing that I had these sort of broader questions that might be good for a novel... Um, once I decided that I did try to stay away from it. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, in like a media embargo or something, but I, I did, you know, I, I didn't seek out information about it certainly. Um, and you know, since I finished cartwheel, like only, only since I've finished cartwheel and it was you know sent off to the publisher, did I even like read the like Wikipedia page for the, um, for the crime. So I, I certainly don't feel like I have any like special insight, you know, of course at all. I mean, from what I've read, I don't, I don't think that there's at all a persuasive case against Amanda Knox. And I don't think that if she'd been accused of this crime, um, in the U S that she would have, um, that the trial would have gotten very far, but that doesn't, you know, that's, that's not any like special, you know, magic insight. Of course, it's just sort of looking at what the actual evidence against her was, which was not much. Well, and you know, like it's such an, it really is compelling. Like, and it brings to mind, like I just read in the, you know, again, like as I, I have this weird, I think it's a very normal, it's actually not weird. It's a very normal experience of information consumption where I can't even remember where I learned of this, but it was somewhere online right. and it was quick, but it was, <laughs> it was a uh, news of a book that's going to be published by Megan Abbott who appeared on this show or didn't appear, but was heard on this show, uh, you know, a little while ago. And she has a novel coming out called, I believe, Fever, which is inspired by all those, that weird rash of uh, teenage girls twitching. 
Do you remember that? Oh, really? Yeah. So oh, I, yeah. And I was like, you know, and, and much like with your book, I was like, these are, this is great. Like, what a great idea. Why didn't I think of writing a, a story about twitching teenagers? Like, that's very strange. That actually happened. Like, there is some really great raw material to work with. And I think likewise with Amanda Knox, not only because of um, the kind of superficial things that we have touched upon already with regard to her beauty and, you know, the possi- you know the possibility of innocence, or is she like a you know, basic instinct kind of femme fatale or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. but, but, but also, you know, on a more personal level, I think of, uh, being that age and then being abroad in an environment that is completely foreign to you where you're at a deficit with not only the culture, but also the language, which in a situation like this, um, you know, adds like layer upon layer of difficulty and intrigue because you can't even communicate your innocence effectively or know what people are saying about you. It's got to be extraordinarily disorienting. So, um, I just think about being that age and being as dumb as I was at that age Mm -hmm. and thinking about like, how would I have handled something like that? Like particularly if you assume her innocence, like you're living with somebody and then like, you know, uh, next thing you know, they wind up dead in some horrific way. And then the police are interrogating you like that is a completely awful like kafka-esque nightmare you know oh absolutely yeah and i think that you know yeah i do think about you know being abroad and like just i mean just sort of normal stupidity for you know not like even like extra stupidity for that age but just like normal standard stupidity it's like it's kind of a miracle that any of us gets out of study abroad like alive or like (laughs) you know with our freedom intact you know i think the judgment was just and i think it was actually better than like a lot of kids that age but it just wasn't that good and so yeah I think that that's it's very true it's it's like I don't think any of us would want to be judged based on you know a snapshot of our behavior at 20 on like study abroad where we're maybe making decisions that you know are kind of culturally apt in certain ways and I don't think any of us would want that snapshot to then determine you know like these huge questions about like who we are and you know whether we should be locked up or not. Well, okay, so wait, so generationally, did you go to college in the era of cell phone cameras? Or was that... No, I mean... Okay, good, because I didn't either, and I I thank my lucky stars for that, because otherwise there there would be videos floating around out there that would just horrify me. I feel so... I, I like, every day feel lucky that I didn't... I wasn't in high school or college, really, like, when the internet... I mean, there was the internet, I'm not that old, but it was not like it is now, and... I think about just the, yeah, just, just sort of like, I see these kids who write like opinion articles for their college newspapers that then get like passed around as like evidence of their like profound, you know, stupidity of like moral corruption. And I just think like, oh, thank God that, you know, not that like my every like opinion or utterance from that age wasn't like, you know, memorialized on the internet and held against me in perpetuity. Like it's really a, I think it's a tough thing for people to navigate. Well, you know, I'm almost 40 and I'm, I worry every day about this show. You know, just the fact that like <laughs> I've made <laughs> 200 and something of these and like all I ever do is think like, am I just making like, a, is this just a long slow motion process of me making an ass of myself over the course of two years? But um, at, some, <laughs> at some point you have to, you know, I, I think you have to just reconcile yourself to being out there. I guess if you're a writer, that's obviously the case, but um you know, I think when it comes to fiction, when it comes to book length projects, you obviously have this level of control that is unusual, um, you know, in terms of how you're presented, especially in the arts. Like, you know, as a writer, if you're working in different realms, you don't have nearly the authority that you have in literature, which is one of its uh, allures, you know. But Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you really do. I mean, you don't have any control over how people take your work or how they read it and it's interesting sometimes like how much of a gap there can be between your intentions and, and people's perceptions, of course. But, but yeah, it's, it's true that, I mean, there's something really, I think, yeah, very rare about that. The fact that you, you don't control who buys it or, or, you know, what they think of it, but you really do control the words that go, you know, in the, in the book itself. And that's pretty, it's pretty great. Well, I think, but I, yeah, I think about, you know, uh, writers on media tour for their books, you know, many of whom, I wind up talking to, uh, I don't know. I guess I just, the the question occurs to me mostly because of this show, but also just generally that, you know, some people, some writers, I think are like made extraordinarily uncomfortable by any loss of that control. 
you know, which is what, like, I think one of them, there are some people who are just like profoundly drawn to, uh, the writing of books and the writing of fiction or nonfiction, uh, precisely mm-hmm. because it allows them to present themselves to the world, um, as perfectly as possible. And, to, mm-hmm. you know, to suffer that imperfection is sort of like intolerable, you know, like, are you in mm-hmm. that realm or are you more like me? And for some reason <laughs> I'm able to do it with, without completely losing my mind. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, what's funny is I actually don't think of it as being a question of me presenting myself to the world at all. Like, I think what, and I think this is common for a lot of writers, like, you know, you, you write so much for so long, you know, for so long before anybody even reads it casually, let alone like reads anything that you've published, like, or a stranger reads something you've written. And I actually think of it as, it's always more to me felt like me talking to myself <laughs> in a strange way when I'm writing and much less about a sense of presentation to others. I mean, it's it's like a profoundly introverted thing, I think. And I think for me, what's challenging is that I'm not by nature particularly extroverted. And really the, the touring um, the touring stuff, it really employs a set of skills that are just are not necessarily the set of skills that writers tend to have. I mean, they're not always <laughs> very good at speaking to other humans and you know they they you can be a really good writer and be really bad at talking about your own writing um so i i for me it's less a question of feeling like any kind of um image that i've been presenting has been you know changed as much as just that you know it's strange to have something that you kind of felt like was your own like private you know like fantasy almost you know suddenly become something you have to you know, kind of talk about and also, you know, get, get feedback on all the time. Okay. So, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I mean, do you think that it helps to go out and talk about it? Do you think that doing stuff like this or going on book tour actually helps? Do you believe that in your heart or do you think it's just like something you feel obligated to do? <laughs> um, because it's a good question, you know, because I think there are some writers who are like, you know what, this doesn't, I'm not doing any of this and the work will speak for itself. And if people find it great, um, I think the majority, like the, the strong majority of writers either don't have that, don't feel they have that luxury or, you know, just can't uh, bring themselves to let the hands of fate do all the work. They feel like they have to try something, you know, but like, where do you fall on, on that? Um, yeah, I think I do try to sort of do everything that I, that I can that comes up as an opportunity because I, I think, and I think that is because I sort of acknowledge that the sort of um, overarching of a book in terms of, you know, sales or what have you, I, I really can't control, but I can do, you know, my best and I can, you know, sort of do whatever comes my way in terms of, you know, opportunities. And so I, I try very hard to, to take advantage of, of that stuff because I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I understand that I don't have control over things, but I do want to feel like I, you know, I did my best and I really tried and I wasn't sort of just being kind of passive about it. But I also understand and respect writers who kind of, you know, want to kind of go the opposite direction and just, and just sort of, you know, let all of that stuff kind of take care of itself and focus on the writing. Cause it's, cause it's true that it's hard to, it's certainly hard to balance, um, you know, the, the marketing aspect with the writing aspect, especially when you're teaching, which I am now. So. Okay. And so when you, and then when you're actually writing the book, um, and you're in that mode where you're sort of uh, isolated from people in a way that you might not be right now as you're in a, in the midst of a publicity cycle, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you're just sort of talking to yourself, as you put it, like, how good are you at focusing during that period? Like, do you find yourself drawn into the internet and distracted? Or are you somebody who can really tunnel into a book and forget that the world exists and have that conversation uh, in a way that is really removed from your consideration of what people might think of it or, you know, how good are you at that focus? Um, I think I'm, I think I'm reasonably good at it. I mean, I, I, I don't, um, I'm not somebody who really needs to be writing like in, you know, an isolation chamber or, you know, I'm, I'm really pretty, I really have terrible habits in terms of like, I don't unplug the internet. Like I don't, you know, I really kind of jump back and forth between things. Um, quite a lot. And I, and I actually sort of find I do best when I'm, um, sort of talk, 
pause flowing between, you know, either a story and a novel or, you know, two different chapters of a novel that maybe are written from a different character's perspective because I kind of find that I might burn out on one and then I can sort of, you know, shift gears and sort of find new energy for another. Um, so I, I think I, I think I'm pretty good at not being too neurotic about worrying about, you know, how will something be read. But it's also true that, you know, I think that the total, like, sort of delusional <laughs> privacy that you feel when you're writing the first book, or at least that I felt writing my first book, is, you know, something you can't get back, and, you know, nor should you really get it back, but it's also kind of this, like, precious, like, somebody can't fathom that anybody else will ever have an opinion about it. I mean, that's a very sort of rare and, like, precious, like, idiocy that is, you know, kind of lovely in its way, I think. So, so yeah, that, that total sense of, like, invisibility that I had with the first one, I certainly could never quite get back. Yeah. I just, you know, I, for some reason I was like, I'm, I'm extrapolating all of this from your bio. I'm, I'm thinking she went to Tufts. She went to Iowa. She's a Stegner fellow. Like this is a person who is high achiever as a child and who is like super organized and disciplined. Huh. No. Oh, I'm not. Or no, I'm, I'm, I'm massively disorganized. You know, I think that, you know, it's creative writing. It's like, I never would have done this well in any other thing. And I never did, you know, I, I just never quite because it, it sort of accommodates this organization and, you know, it's in a way very forgiving if you're kind of actually a pretty disorganized soul as I think I am. Okay. So where, like, and you said you grew up in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what kind of kid were you? Were you, were you a massively, <laughs> ma a massively disorganized, messy child? Um, I was pretty disorganized. I was just very, I mean, I was a weird little kid. I mean, I was an only child and I grew up in the woods. Um, and I just, I was very like, dreamy and I just sort of played in the brook all the time and like caught crayfish. And, um, I had like a very active imagination and just sort of, you know, I don't know. I was just sort of this like kind of dreamy, like slightly solitary only child. Um, what town did, what town did you grow up in? Um, it's called Williamsburg. It's a really tiny town, but it's right next to Northampton, which is where Smith College is. Okay. Okay. So like kind of like a bucolic, it sounds beautiful, like bucolic, like child, yeah, child of nature. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was nice. I mean, my my parents were kind of, not even like hippies, but you know, they had sort of some tendencies in that direction and it was a, yeah, it was a really beautiful place to, to grow up. Okay. So what did your parents do? Like, were they artistic? Yeah, my father was a musician and a professor of music at UMass. Um, so he was also very, yeah, he was very artistic, kind of dreamy, a little disorganized, you know. Um, did you ever, and my did, mom you guys, is, did you guys ever like run into each other in the woods? Like unbeknownst to, <laughs> I'm, picturing the two, I'm picturing the two of you taking separate walks and happening to, you know, happening to cross paths. <laughs> no, but we would, I mean, when I was little, he, we would, you know, we would play in the woods a lot and he would, you know, he would go on sort of adventures and he was always like, like building tree houses that were very, um, you, you know, like these like eyesores that like from an adult perspective, I look back and think like, oh, I can see how my mom wasn't like thrilled to have this giant tree house like in front of her house. But as a kid, it was, you know, really thrilling for me. And, you know, he was very sort of whimsical and, and kind of offbeat. And um, and then my mom is a um, social worker and she teaches social work at Smith College School for Social Work. Um, and she's, you know, really very super smart and funny and much more organized than I am. Um, and so, so yeah, it was, it was a really nice, I mean, it was a really nice experience growing up and the, the two of them kind of provided some different sides of the coin in, in some ways. And yeah, it was good. I know it sounds, I mean, it's, it's all making, it's all making sense to me now, you know, like, uh, I, oh, okay. <laughs> I think, I think con contact with nature is a good thing. I think being an only child, I mean, that sort of prepares you for the solitary nature of the writing work. And then I think that, um, I mean, this is not always the case, but uh, children of academics, you know, tend to have a more writerly bent. They're usually smart. I feel like, I don't know, your parents, uh, it seems like your parents edu you know, educated you well, like were a good influence, passed good books to you, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. I mean, they really, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they really valued education and they always read to me when I was a kid and, you know, yeah. And they were very just like encouraging of, um, very just encouraging of my curiosity, you know, like any curiosity I had about something, they were just very indulgent of and very encouraging of. And, um, yeah, I mean, they, they were, I think, yeah, there, it was definitely, I mean, I don't think that there's like a, a roadmap 
even to like raising a, a writer. And if there were, I don't know that anybody would necessarily want to talk <laughs> it. But, you know, and yeah, looking back, certainly I can see that there were probably, you know, a lot of factors in my childhood that like probably made this something I was more likely to do. So, I mean, yeah, did they see it coming? Like, was it something? Because that's the thing, too, is that I feel like maybe parents who have artistic sympathies or who work in the arts might be better at um, understanding, you know, a child who has those sorts of proclivities and uh, might uh, know better how to nurture it. Um, yeah, I mean, they certainly weren't like, <laughs> they weren't like stage parents, like, you know, grooming me for a life of literary <laughs> stardom or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was always like a pretty verbal little kid and yeah, I mean, they certainly like made books available to me and, you know, encouraged me to do whatever I wanted, but, but I wasn't on like a one track, um, you know, I did a lot of like things as a, as a kid that, you know, I didn't wind up pursuing later on, um, you know, uh, but, uh. But yeah, they were certainly very, very, very supportive of education and, and curiosity of any kind. And so, and you were a good student. You mean you went to Tufts, so you had to have done fairly well. Well, I got enough a wait list at Tufts, but yeah, I was I was okay. <laughs> I, I um, yeah, I was I was a I was a, like a fine student. I'm, I'm you know really, you know my my brain is very like split. I'm I'm pretty pretty good at the sort of verbal side of things, and I'm almost almost like in incapacitated when it comes to like spatial relations and, and things of that nature. So, um, what do you mean? Yeah, what, I, what do you mean? I, spa- I, what do you mean? Spatial relations and things like mathematics or like geometry or, well, yeah, but like, yeah, but even just like a more practical level, like, um, like being able to like estimate how far I am from objects or like where they are <laughs> in space or like what I would have to do to like rotate an object to like make it, you know, for example, when I was in college, I was like forever, like concerned that I was blocking my roommate's view of the TV. And apparently I was like always notoriously <laughs> far away from this TV. And it was like this running like jokes. They couldn't understand like how I could possibly think that I was. You thought, that, you <laughs> thought the bong, you thought the bong was close to your face, but it was actually like a foot away. <laughs> no, this is sadly just like my, my natural state. <laughs> um, but yeah. And um, so, and so while you were at Tufts, you went, cause I mean, your, your books both deal with foreign, um, adventures. So travel, I have to uh, assume is like a passion of yours. And was this something that you did as a child or was it something that you really started doing, you know, when you were a college student studying abroad? Yeah, I actually did do a lot of traveling as a child because my father directed the UMass Chorale and they would do international concert tours every other year. So I got to go tag along with these, um, choir tours, um, from like the age of four, to 14. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that was like a crazily lucky and cool thing to get to do. Um, which I, of course, as a little kid sort of took as like normal. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great. And when I was six and that was in 1990, we went to, um, Russia and Poland and, um, that was like an interesting time to be there. And I think that that trip sort of like for some reason kind of just imprinted on me, this kind of curiosity about Eastern Europe in particular, which then, then really stayed with me. And then when I was in college, I, um, you know, I, I wanted to go study in, um, in Prague, which was, I was sort of enchanted by the idea of doing that and then had a great time there. So, so yeah, my, my childhood traveling really like did sort of, I think, shape the nature of then like my adult traveling. See, I think, I mean, it's obviously a privilege to be able to travel. So you have to kind of start there. Not everybody can, Yeah. but no. I, th- I, I almost feel like, you know, like as a national value, I feel like we need to uh, promote this more because in certain countries they do. Like, I feel like the Australians, uh, I think maybe as an outgrowth of the fact that they're uh, more geographically, remo- you know, removed from uh, the rest of the world, kind of tucked away down there. They, they seem to like, you know, promote this idea that like, yeah, when you're a young person or, or that it's a good thing to go out for like a six month or a year long, like adventure around the globe and see different parts of the world and ways of being like, I don't feel like Americans do that. And I think you miss out, uh, profoundly. And I think it, it hurts us. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I really hope that my own kids can travel a lot because I feel yeah. like in my own travels, I probably learn more in a compressed amount of time traveling internationally than I did in like multiple years of in-class study. Uh, in yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely probably one of the best things I've ever done. Um, 
but yeah, it, it is certainly just like something that's, you know, completely, you know, unavailable to, to most, to most people. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, like in Europe, they can just hop on a train and they're in a different country and having a different experience but here, you know, it involves this whole flight across the ocean, which, you know, it's probably harder, harder to, to swing for a lot of people. But yeah, it is, it was definitely, you know, the, just, yeah, probably one of the biggest strokes of luck of my life that I got to do this as a kid and then continue as an adult. Cause it's been, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know I, I, under, I hear what you're saying. I, it's just like, I feel like maybe it's, it's it's also part of the the problem with only having like ten days paid vacation a year. It's like you, if you only have ten days, probably the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you have, if you have, gonna if find you, a year. Yeah, if you have four to six weeks, you can do some planning, you know, and it's paid vacation. But I don't know. I just feel like the world would be better off if we all visited one another, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, okay, so you traveled as a child. You went to Prague, uh, and but by the way, you said you were in Russia at a particularly interesting time. Like, what was this? What early nineties? Yeah, it was nineteen ninety, and I mean, I sort of hesitate to like. I was six, so I, I can't really claim that. Like, did you, you know? Did you participate? <laughs> did you participate in the revolution at age six, Jennifer? I actually, little known fact, led the coup. Yes, I mean, I. <laughs> I was I was quite the operative, um, but yeah, yeah. But but there was actually I think you know kind of an interesting. I mean I don't you know it's sort of silly to say because I was six years old. However, you know my father's choir would sing these songs about you know they would sing these gospel songs about your freedom, and there really was like this you know response that seemed I think you know authentic and and genuine, and it seemed real, and and even very small details that you know, um, I think kind of illustrated to me in some like concrete child, you know, child accessible way what was happening. You know, I remember we, we were in Russia for, I don't even, I'm not even sure how long, it wasn't that long, but we hadn't like had any fruit or anything the whole time we were there. And I remember we got to Poland and I had this like vivid memory of this banana that we bought at like a fruit stand and, but I, and like eating this banana just being this like, and I think that like in a small way that kind of helped me as a very like, you know, sheltered, privileged little kid, like get a sense of what like the deprivation, like just a tiny little minuscule sense of like the difference between like being in a place where you could not get a banana, like versus a place you could. And so things like that, I think, I think that that was, you know, kind of interesting for me. And also it was just a really cool experience. And just, you know, I just was really, I really liked it. And I always remembered that trip, you know, kind of fondly as I got older and um, it just sort of sparked then a curiosity about Eastern Europe and, and, um, Russia. And, and then I, I majored in political science and, you know, and I was really kind of mostly interested in the sort of international relations aspect. So, um, that kind of morphed into an interest that was kind of more like academic and intellectual. Um, well, well that's interesting. And, and, you know, I think about Russia and I think about, I mean, I don't know how at the age of six, when you were there, if you had, that much of a sense of this, but uh, I'm a little bit older than you are, I think. And, you know, you, I grew up in cold war years, like the watching the cold war dissipate as a young child. And like, you know, we had, when I was a kid in uh, first grade, we had air raid drills involving nuclear war. Really? Like, like, like we, mm-hmm. we were, we were told to get under our desks and practice for like, yeah. And it's like, like, really, they're going to drop a nuclear bomb on us. We're going to get under our desks. <laughs> you think that's going to help? Right. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I have very vivid memories of that and I have a very, um, you know, strong sense of, uh, you know, a strong memory of, you know, the Russians being bad and they don't like us and all this stuff. So uh-huh. I wonder if like you had any taste of that just from media consumption and, you know, just the, the broader cultural environment in America. And if being there at the time that you were there and, and just being there period might've had a demystifying effect on you that was powerful where it's like, wait a minute, this isn't <laughs> quite what I thought it was. Did, was that part of it? Well, you know, honestly, I think I was just simply too young to either, at that point, to either have really internalized, like, any, I mean, my media consumption would, would just have been Sesame Street, I think, so. Yeah, you're like, um, you're like I, was, I, I was in the woods. I was in the woods playing with crayfish, uh, you know. Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, we didn't really have TV, I mean, we didn't really even have TV, but, but even if, if we had, I don't think that, like, at six, you'd be necessarily that, I, I don't know. Well, maybe, I guess they put, like, the heavily Russian accented villains and like the cartoons sometimes. So maybe it's just the fact we didn't have much television, but, um, but so, yeah, I, I don't think that 
I necessarily had like preconceptions that were then altered, but, but yeah, I think you're right. that It's possible that like a demystifying effect would, you know, occurred, um, or, or just maybe in the sense of just in a broader way, like traveling to these different places as a kid, like maybe it just made me sort of feel like those places were places you could kind of go back to, or you could think about, or you could imagine, or you could write about. I mean, maybe that, that seems sort of more possible to you um, later yeah, on. Yeah, it makes your world bigger. That. It makes your world bigger. You're right, saying, you know, exactly. And, and like it, it, it um, I don't know if legitimizes is the right word, but it authenticates your sense of participation in the broader world in a way that like you can't, I don't think you can feel unless you actually go there and like, you know, walk among the people and see the place, you know, it makes it real to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had that sense very much when I came back from, study abroad, which of course is like, you know, you know, in a way I, I sort of like laugh at my, you know, just when you're 20, it's like every experience you have, you think kind of is like this like giant revelation. <laughs> you're like somehow the first person to have it. No, I, just, like, I was just going to say, cause I did a study abroad in Australia and I think maybe like the worst I ever was as a human being was like the, the, like the two the two weeks after I came back. I'm like, I, oh, everybody's the worst. That's yeah. the worst period of anyone's life. I thought I was like I thought I, I was a genius. I was like, you have no idea what I've seen uh, like out there at sea. Yes. You know, it, it was awful. Yes. Oh my God! Absolutely. Yeah. Just just like this. Well, in <laughs> in the Czech Republic, and it's, you know, it's funny because I've sort of noticed. What's kind of funny is like. I noticed that my like affectations sort of, or like my attachment to this place, Prague has like persisted, even though I like know that it's sort of silly. Like I went back to Prague with my mother and my aunt, like a couple, like maybe two years ago. And all of a sudden I found myself like just sort of like, tw- like 20 years old again and feeling just like, like completely mortified if we were to speak English you know, even though, of course, everybody speaks English. I'm like, of course, this is like basically how American tourists like move through the world anywhere. And of course, this is like what, you know, it would make me feel much less uncomfortable like in any other city. But because it was this city that I'd like lived in, it had like invested all this energy and like trying to sort of, you know, um, live by its like rules and like try to like learn so much about it. that I realized that I was like, you know, falling back into this, these, that sort of like, you know, post-adolescent, like, sort of affected sense of, like... Where you're, like, telling, you know, you're telling your mom not to talk too loud in the cafe and stuff like that. Exactly. Right, exactly. And then I'm sort of, like, it's just funny, because, like, nowhere else probably would I feel that way, but it's, like, somehow you, you sort of have this, like, yeah, this weird, like, sense of... Well, I feel like I have, like, because I'm just, like, naturally, like, I will find things to feel guilty for, and so when I'm abroad... Um, you know, I learn, you learn about how much disdain you can feel and, and people will even vocalize it to your face, which in some ways I think is a little bit, uh, uncouth, but they'll just tell you like American tourists are awful. They're loud. They're disrespectful. They just assume that we speak English, you know, that we speak English and right. you know, it's yeah. not, it's not a great leap for me to imagine how I would feel if I'm walking down the street in Los Angeles and somebody comes up to me and just starts speaking um, you know, Russian in my face, like I know what they're talking about, you know, like I would be like, what, like, what do you, I have no idea what you're saying. And, you know, Americans just sort of assume. So, you know, there's little things like that, that I could relate to and would feel bad about. And, you know, there's also like that American kind of bravado that I would then feel like I needed to apologize for. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I guess like when I was traveling, yeah. I would sometimes feel like I needed to try to be part of the solution <laughs> instead of re- represent, oh, sure. re- yeah. represent, representing my country in a way that like, I felt like I was trying to work against the popular perception. That we're all like these loudmouth, like, you know, uh, self-centered bombastic. I don't know. Right. You yeah. Know? But I also, then, yeah, I, then, I, then, then I can flug, then I can turn back and be like, why am I such a self-hating American? Like, you know, there's all kinds of different people. Like, why are they painting us with such a broad brush? You know? Well, right, and I think that's what's what's sort of tricky is like you know you you kind of simultaneously are like an emissary of your you know country or, or whatever, but you're also just like a, you know an individual human person, and you know in some ways there's a sense of wanting to right of wanting to sort of subvert any stereotypes about Americans, and then there's also this you know the flip side of being where I mean you know and I think that this probably happens this happens for anybody probably to some extent traveling anywhere in the world, but, you know, of course, with um, America sort of having a unique you know, position in the world, it means that you do sort of travel and, and you're like accountable for like, you know, George W. Bush or, or something, you know, and people want to know 
like what you have to say for yourself about the Iraq war or something. And you're, um, you know, sort of, it's, it's, you know, that conflating of the individual with the collective is of course like really problematic. Well, right. And and it's like, horrible thing. Well, it's, and it's like the, you know, the kind of the popular culture aspect too. Like, I feel like, our popular culture is exported so many different places and people feel like, you know, by way of that they have, uh, well, and I think I also have to, I, I think that a lot of um, people, you know, people in other countries, I think might or often, okay, how do I say this in a way that uh, accurately expresses what I think? I, I feel that some f- people from foreign countries uh, broadly speaking, have a deeper understanding of uh, geopolitics and American politics um, in in ways that maybe Americans don't about the rest of the world, or most Americans don't. Broadly, yeah. broadly speaking, because I've had interactions with like Germans. Uh, I remember, in, you know, in particular, I was in Mexico at a wedding, and I was on the beach, and I just happened to strike up a conversation with these German tourists, and. I had like one of the like deepest and most like uh, nuanced because dis- I'm a political junkie and um, like they knew so much they knew way more than I did mm-hmm. and I read this stuff all the time right. I walked away from the conversation being like Jesus like I know nothing about German politics beyond like Andrea Merkel just like one re-election you know like uh, it just made me feel sheepish you know like and and I think that <laughs> maybe that maybe that was an outlier I'm sure there are plenty of Germans who don't know one thing about American politics but it seems to me because of our cultural uh, you know the, the the reach of our cultural exports particularly like the movies and music and whatnot and then also just like you said the unique place that we tend to hold geopolitically that maybe people pay more attention to us or feel by way of you know uh, kind of us being there all the time that they have more of a uh, right to critique it or uh i guess when you have a deeper understanding it's easier to talk about it in a way that might be critical you know yeah well i mean certainly i mean i think that the reality is that you know the u.s and its decisions and its politics and its leadership you know affects the rest of the countries and people of the world vastly more than any other one country affects so you know they they i think you know they are sort of more informed and also it's kind of unavoidable to a certain extent and and also the decisions and the policies that you know of, of the U.S. just just really do have kind of wide ramifications, I, I think. And so there is this sense of you know, of course, like you know, it, there being you know, a, like not not a degree of like ownership, but yeah, a certainly a degree of investment, of course, in the decisions that you know the U.S. makes. But we're also just, of course, like a, a like, and maybe it's a function of just our geography and our like sort of you know kind of the we're just such a big country that can sort of contain so much anyway that I think we just don't look outside ourselves quite to the degree that a lot of other places do I have to and of course that's like reflected in you know just our sort of appalling like appalling lack of knowledge about the rest of the world um you know like when they oh god that with the uh you know the Boston Marathon bombers were like it was like revealed that there's like a very basic and like widespread confusion about whether, you know, Chechnya is the Czech Republic or whether they're they're different. Wait, wait, wait. wait, I can stop um, you. I can stop you. Like 40% of our country doesn't know who Joe Biden is. Like that's all you need to know. That's it. It's like, you you cry out for a second. Doesn't know what. They they don't know like who Joe Biden is. You know, like it's that profound. Mm -hmm. It's like that profound of a disconnect among so many people who live here. Like if they don't know that, they're cer- right. they're certainly not going to know anything about Chechnya unless they happen to know somebody, right. you know, know somebody who's from Chechnya or something. But um, do you feel like with your books, um, like, do you have any sense of trying to address the things that we're talking about through fictions, or is that just something that's sort of like a peripheral side benefit? Um. Like, do you, mean, do you do you hope to maybe like bridge some sort of cultural divide by setting your books abroad and like? dealing with uh, the collision of cultures and so, and so on? Like maybe that would be a, you know, oh, a, a, um, like part of the enrichment of reading a book by you would be the fact that it would introduce readers to different places and different ways of being or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be, that would be great. I mean, I don't necessarily think that I, you know, write big books to try to bridge any cultural divide. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't feel like, like as much as explore them kind of, you know, cause I sort of feel like fiction doesn't, it shouldn't really like, 
aim to, you know, have any sort of like project, but I do, but I do want to explore it. And especially in court and cartwheel, you know, I very much want to sort of explore, you know, the sort of um, complicated, the just sort of complicated fallout of the fact that this, you know, young woman who's studying abroad in Buenos Aires is, um, is American and the ways in which sort of the, you know, feelings about, American entitlement and kind of the, you know, anti-American resentment that kind of is the flip side of that, um, you know, plays into visions of her, of her innocence or guilt and, you know, and, and are further complicated, of course, by sort of the specific complicated, you know, fraught um, history of, you know, the U.S. in you know, Argentina specifically and, and sort of, you know, again, kind of just negotiating that, that question of, you know, a person being simultaneously a single, you know, individual particular person, but also being kind of always seen as like representative of, um, of a collective or sort of symbolic of, you know, something else. And in the case of my character, you know, what symbol she is perceived to be kind of determines like whether the person sees her as this, um, you know, kind of, uh, just, just this sort of like, you know, latest line in a string of, you know, kind of American entitlement and brutality or whether she's seen as like, you know, the latest line of, you know, innocent young women like persecuted for their sexuality or, you know, whatever. And what's kind of interesting to me is that, you know, both of those things are, are true in the abstract, but neither one can kind of tell you um, to answer like a very specific, you know, limited individual question about, you know, one person and whether they did, you know, one thing in this case. So I take it you've been to Buenos Aires? Yeah, I went there um, a couple of years ago with my with my friend, and um, I didn't, you know, I was there for, I guess, probably about a, a week or a little bit more, maybe. Um, so it wasn't an a enormously long trip, but, you know, it was there enough. a little bit. It was enough. Did you, I've never been there. Did you like it? I did like it. Yeah, I had a great time. I feel sort of bad because some I, I've gotten some reaction to the book, um, people saying like that it's like a really harrowing, a really like negative depiction of Buenos Aires. And I, and I feel so bad to, to think that, that it would be, um, that, that the city would be like taking the heat for this like fictional crime that occurred there. I mean, my experience there was very nice and, you know, it's a horrible crime, which could occur anywhere and does occur anywhere. And, yeah. People need to toughen, um, people need yeah. to toughen up for God's sakes. It's a fiction. <laughs> Uh, um, so here's, a, um, here's yeah. one more, here's one more travel re- related question for you, just because this is something that I do and it doesn't even necessarily have to be international travel, but like when you travel abroad to uh, a foreign city, do you find yourself upon landing or do you, I guess when you're packing, like, are you, do you try to dress like the people who live there as a way of blending in? <laughs> oh, you know, to be honest with you, like I, <laughs> I'm so like I'm barely learning how to like dress like the people who live in America. Like I, I'm like still like just like trying to like I'm very bad at like figuring out um how people dress and I wouldn't really be very good I think at like um my husband and I lived in Paris for um last fall and you know, I you know I would despair at ever trying to like even for a moment appear to be possibly a Parisian woman. But Okay, um, wait, wait, wait. You lived in you lived in Paris last year? Yeah, we were there from um August to January, or no, I'm sorry, October to January. What, what brought you um, over there? A couple of months. Well, my husband has a fellowship. He was, he's also a fiction writer and we met at, at Stanford and Stanford actually has this apartment there in this, um, apartment building that, you know, has artists of different kinds in these studios. And so he had this um, fellowship there and he very nicely let me join him. Um, and so, yeah, we lived in this like tiny little, like, really tiny studio and he <laughs> and he had like this desk in a utility closet that he sat in and sort of tried to like alternate working in there because it was very small and we had like a trundle bed and it, but it was great it was a wonderful time wait, wait now who is he i'm sorry i apologize for not knowing oh his name is justin perry okay we'll put him on the phone let me talk to him too <laughs> <laughs> um well that sounds great so you've been you've been all over the place and um you know, to go back to whether or not you blend, like, so, you know, you're, you're comfortable, like you can show up and like, I, like, I think the point that I'm driving at is that if I show up in Paris or I show up even in New York or wherever I am, like I will, 
find myself suddenly trying to dress like the people on the street. Like I, I very much mm-hmm. like, I like to physically blend. I do not like to stand out at all. <laughs> right. But you can just show up and be like, whatever, like this is, this is me. I feel like that speaks well of you. I think I need to do more of that. Well, I think it's more, it's more just like you have to know your own like capacities. Like I, I <laughs> it's like, I just, I just know that like, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I just am not very like visual and I can't like look at somebody's outfit and, and figure out like, okay, I know how to like make myself like mirror that. But I certainly do try to, you know, I mean, for one thing, it helps that I'm not like exactly a very like loud dresser to begin with. So it's not like I'm, I, I don't think, you know, walking around with like, you know, just attracting like a ton of attention anyhow. But I certainly do, of course, like try to um, be mindful of any like, you know, mores in terms of like modesty or wearing a, you know, a headscarf if I'm in a place that, you know, needs that or a, you know, longer dress or whatever, you know, so I certainly try to be very like mindful of the modesty dictates of different places. Um, but yeah, in terms of trying to like, so like you're, you're, not style, gonna, you're not going to show up in like Saudi Arabia and start rocking like mini skirts. And I don't even know. Have you, have you traveled? You said <laughs> have you traveled in the middle East and had to do that or no, I, I've never been to, I mean, no, I mean, I've been to, no, okay. never been turkey which is not the middle east at all but i would love to go someday yeah i mean i had a very... and no i would not wear a mini skirt <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> neither would i uh so you had a well, very I... um let's see you had a very uh peripatetic or not peripatetic but you had a lot of uh, traveling in, in childhood went to tufts studied abroad um came back a genius and then <laughs> And yes, the, and then, as all study abroad students do. Yeah, and then that 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 quickly fades, and then you get into uh, <laughs> Iowa. Like, how quickly after you left Tufts did you do your MFA at Iowa? Um, I applied to Iowa the year after I graduated from college, and then so I went there. So there's only a year in between. So you, um, so you were writing as an undergraduate. I mean, that's. I mean, you must have been fairly young to get into Iowa. Yeah, although I think that actually they, the sort of average age is getting younger and younger now, that, especially now that there's this, um, you know, like undergraduate major in creative writing you can do, but um, which I didn't did not. But yeah, I took a few classes in in college. I was a double major in political science and philosophy, so um, I think I wound up with an English minor. Although I've never seen any like documentation to support this, but <laughs> I think that that's true. I took enough classes, um, and. Uh, yeah, and then after, but so it was always a serious, you know, I would say, a, you know, a passion, like a serious hobby, you know, probably the thing I was most, um, that I most wanted to do with my, you know, spare time if I could, but not something, of course, I ever imagined trying to shape any kind of career around. Um, not that I had like a really clear <laughs> alternate plan either. But um, then I I spent a year teaching at teaching um, seventh grade social studies at a um, Catholic middle school outside of Boston, and I just was sort of casting about for ideas for what I might try to do, and um, I kind of just applied for a lot of things that I thought would be exciting, but were also kind of outlandish, and one of them was the Iowa Writers Workshop, um, and so then when I got in, I was very surprised. What did you What did <laughs> and, you submit? What did you submit to get in? I submitted two short stories, um, one of which I guess I'd written in college, for, and then and then the other one I wrote the year after college, but, you know, to give you a sense of how much I was writing, it took me all year to write one short story. Like, I remember just, you know, every, like, two weeks, in, like, on a Saturday, being like, okay, let me, like, find an hour to try to, like, look on the story. So it was not something I was, like, you know, doing very steadily or finding much time for, but... But I did write this, you know, other story. And so I sent those. Um, and, you know, I am still very surprised that they, that I got in because they were very, very, you know, immature stories. But I think that, you know, they just sort of saw that they had, you know, potential. Um, and, you know, then later when I was a reader for um, for Iowa, you know, I think that I sort of understood that you know, there's a big gap between, like, competence and, you know, sort of the like, um, sensibility or like a unique kind of voice that, you know, maybe is very like underdeveloped that you can kind of see that, that with time, um, they might, you know, turn into something. So, 
but but yeah, I mean, I I was very lucky and very very startled to be <laughs> to be admitted. Well, no, I mean, I feel like Iowa. I mean, that's like a big break in a writer's career. I feel like Iowa. Oh God. I think Iowa is to literary writing what Saturday Night Live is to comedy. You know, like it, it's a legitimizer. You know, and I think when yeah. when you have the Iowa MFA in your bio, I think people take you more seriously. I think that's the truth. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, it's it's also just such a huge. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's just such a great like sort of gift of like you know not only the, the time but also this like weird sort of permission. It's like you know, yes, like you, you should spend, you know, a significant amount of your time pursuing this thing that you've like been doing furtively, sporadically, you know, maybe, you know, or, or whatever. And, and, you know, I, I suppose there are a lot of writers who, I mean, I, I guess self-regard is like not like in short supply among, among writers. So there are probably a lot of writers who get into Iowa and think like, you know, yes, this is the, like I knew this David come like finally my greatness and, <laughs> acknowledged but I think there are also a lot of writers who are kind of like just so flummoxed and grateful and like finally feel like this has given them this like validation and permission to like actually take seriously a thing that of course is you know not only not taken seriously widely but is you know generally inadvisable to take particularly seriously in your own life if you you know want to like survive and so um so yeah I think that it was both like sort of an external and like kind of internal like validation of, you know, yes, you know, you should, you should do this. So it sounds like you had a good time there. Yeah, I did. I had a really great time there. <laughs> it was a blast. And I learned a ton and I wrote like a crazy person, like a lot. And, um, you know, I just, yeah, I had a really great time. And did, and did you finish partial history there? Did I finish? Um, I'm trying to remember. I think I did finish a draft. I think I finished a draft of it, yeah. Okay. And, and then I had to, yeah, and then I was revising it, that draft, like, during my first year at Stanford and then so sold we, it, and then... Okay, so, like, you're at Iowa, you graduate from Iowa, and then you get a Stegner Fellow. As if, as if the, uh, the bounty of a two-year MFA at Iowa is not enough, you then went to Stanford and were a Stegner Fellow? I know. I mean, I feel really just, like... Yeah, I feel really like outrageously, outrageously lucky, and it's and it's kind of funny because, like in retrospect, you know, in hindsight, I think people sort of see this progression of events, and I've actually had a couple of people say like, "Oh, you must have been like, you know, so ambitious, and you must have like had this plan or this, you know, like this strategy for success." And it was, and it's you know really quite the opposite. It's like every single one of these things is honestly just me kind of like saying, "Well, like why not? You know, sure, I'll I'll, I'll pay the like thirty bucks for the." application fee for this thing that's like with you know with the Stegner it's kind of like buying a lotto ticket almost and um you know so so yeah I was you know planning to to try to get a job or something after Iowa and you know it was 2009 and like (laughs) I'd somehow managed to make my philosophy undergraduate degree even less employable with my MFA in fiction writing. And so (laughs) I was very, very lucky. I mean, again, just hugely lucky to have this, um, this, you know, senior fellowship come from, you know, out of the blue. And, and so then I went to California and did my, um, fellowship there. And, and that's when I sold, sold the first book. So I've been, yeah, I, I really feel, you know, just tremendously, tremendously grateful. So, and now as the second book comes out uh, and you have, you know, a position in academia that gives you at least some stability, like what are your, like looking forward, do you have uh, high hopes that you're going to be able to one day pay the bills with fiction exclusively or are you more tempered than that? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, cer- certainly. I mean, right now I, I, I'm lucky enough that I actually can and I think what you don't know is you know will like you know will that last like how long does that last you know what I mean it's a very shaky prospect you know you can never know for sure you know what's going to happen down the road and so you know you kind of have to temper um I think you always in any sort of thinking about anybody's life you have to sort of be aware that everything can change um and how do you try to sort of um you know uh, prepare for that. So, so yeah, I mean, but, but certainly, I mean, although I like, I like having teaching as, you know, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for, at least for me, kind of like 
leaving the house and interacting with people at least like sometimes during the week, I think is a good, um, is, is good for me. So I, you know, I, I, I like having you know some balance between, between sitting at a computer and, and, and not sitting at a computer. <laughs> right. No, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Well, uh, it's all very impressive and, uh, I congratulate you on all the success. It's been really fun talking with you and I wish you the best with this book and I wish you uh, all the best going forward. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Jennifer Dubois. Go get her novel. It's called Cartwheel. It is out there now waiting for you. And it is uh, published by Random House. You can find Jennifer online at jennifer-dubois.com. She's on Twitter at Jennifer underscore Dubois. And she's also on the Facebook. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget about the app. It's the free official Other People app, the official uh, app of this program. It's the best way to listen and to access the full archives. Everybody knows this. I've said it a million times. Everybody knows uh, about this except for you. So please go get the app if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. You can have it. I'm just giving it to you. Uh, Okay, enjoy your Halloween. Wherever you are. What are you doing for Halloween? Are you uh, young? Are you uh, like 24 years old? Are you part of the counterculture? Are you going to some sort of weird party? Please be careful. Stay hydrated. Don't take seven hits of Molly. (laughs) Uh, That's how out of it I am. I just learned what Molly is about like four months ago. I had no idea. This is what happens uh, when you get older and you fall out of touch with uh, the wider culture. They develop new drugs and they give them uh, human names. Please remember that Yeats had his tonsils removed at age 55 and that Wordsworth owned uh, fewer than 300 books. That is it for now. Thanks again to Jennifer Dubois. Go get Cartwheel, her novel. Uh, I will be back again uh, shortly, just a few days. I will uh, bring to the table another episode of this program, another audio file. I will upload the file. You can then download the file. And in this manner, the file will be shared and we will uh, commune. For some reason, Billy Joel just popped into my head. (laughs) 